Generating a lot of discussion in recent news has been Kanye West, or Ye, as he's often referred, and what many have seen as a very mental public, um, very public mental breakdown. And since it was only a few years ago that Kanye kind of publicly professed um, his conversion to Christianity or his reclaimed Christianity, it's really not only his fans and followers who have been kind of disturbed by his recent behavior, but also the church. We're asking a lot of questions there too. And while I don't want to take today's episode to just analyze Kanye West, um, I do want to talk about the church's understanding of mental health and mental illness. Um, as we've spotlighted before on this podcast, you know, the pandemic just brought about, or if not exaggerated, um, really what has been kind of a mental health crisis um, and just all of the concerns that have come about or that the pandemic really brought to the surface. And I think in a good way, it's really generated a lot of helpful conversation. Um, but the church has historically been more silent on mental illness and mental health, or at least that has been a lot of people's personal experience, which has led to a lot of private suffering or a public stigmatization within the church. And so, Jim, um, I hope to have a robust conversation about this with you, but I was hoping that maybe you could start us off by perhaps just defining mental health and then giving some characteristics as like maybe a life that would um, be described as a life of mental health. Yeah, well, let me, let me because we're going to be having a lengthy conversation about this, let me give a, a short answer to what was obviously a, a, a question that deserves a very lengthy and, and could be a very lengthy response. Um, I, I think that when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about two types of mental health issues. There's, there's kind of the um, uh, overall mental health, uh, which, you know, just a holistic wholeness there. And then there is mental health issues that need professional treatment. Uh, or, you know, some type of very advanced counseling, if not uh, um, some type of prescription, medical prescription, some kind of antidote. Uh, and you just hear me say with this, and right at the beginning, and we'll get into this more, that if you or anyone you know has mental health issues, I mean, then you need to get the help you need without shame and without awkwardness and without embarrassment. Let's just make sure that we go ahead and set a tone. It's not like this is some kind of sin or failure in your life. If someone is really dealing, for example, with something like clinical depression, uh, they need to be on antidepressants, just like a diabetic needs to be on insulin. And um, and that's true for any number of mental health issues. Uh, what the Bible highlights overall when it comes to mental health um, is overall day in, day out mental health. And if it has a prescription for that, that helps with garden variety types of depression or times when you're discouraged or defeated or when you feel isolated and alone when you don't know who to talk to or where to go when you feel anxious about something when you feel overwhelmed by life and its pressures um when you just feel like you need some kind of support and help and encouragement the bible has a prescription and it's a single step interestingly we really can simplify it and it's to step into intentional community and again, we can talk about that more as this conversation goes on. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about that. But first, you know, if mental health is really the target on the wall, what are some of the most common barriers that that prevent us from experiencing mental health or that um, force us to fall short? And I wonder too, if um, as you're explaining that, if any of those are specific to kind of the cultural environment of the last couple yeah. of years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why we're talking about this more over the last 24 to 36 months is because mental health issues exploded uh, with all things COVID. But let's talk about, first of all, the main threats. 
almost every mental health expert would tell you that the two biggest threats are isolation and loneliness. Th those are two. I mean, you can talk about uh, issues like, you know, stress and substance abuse and a lot of other things that contribute to hereditary issues in, uh, related to mental health. But the two things that have really been pinpointed, loneliness and isolation. Well, if those are two of the biggest issues related to mental uh, dis-ease, well, then think about what's happened culturally for the last 24 to 36 months with COVID. Um, you had loneliness and isolation on the rise, in fact, even enforced upon us. And many of the most basic things related to community were taken away. And so from 2020 forward, you did see this huge increase in mental health issues because of loneliness, because of isolation, and yet increased stress and anxiety related to just the pandemic as well. But I don't think you can just stop there culturally. I think there's a second dynamic beyond COVID's uh, increased isolation and loneliness. Uh, the second big cultural dynamic is the digital revolution and how, so what did we do with that isolation and loneliness? Was it just isolation and loneliness? No, we then delved headfirst into this thing called the online world. And the online world is uh, often highly dysfunctional and anti-community, counter-community, feeds isolation and loneliness and anxiety and stress and fear. And you had the just incredible explosion of everything from conspiracy theories to um, on bad behavior and trolling and all kinds of things that were just contributing to a lack of mental health. So when you when you look at what the cultural you know milieu was for the last thirty six months, it was a perfect storm for mental health issues to just be um, go a devastating increase. And just to clarify, when you say um, isolation and loneliness, you're not using those as synonyms, right? Like, are you as isolation like like physical and loneliness is more emotional? How? Are, how yeah, are you well, I do think that you do see it in in the in the mental health literature. You see those two words used separately. I mean, somewhat synonymously, because you know, if you're isolated, you might tend to be lonely. If you're lonely, it might be because you're isolated. But it's it's not necessarily um, the fact. It's more like isolation itself has its own set of negatives okay. and and then loneliness is often a product of that but um you can be lonely and not be isolated yeah so you, you do kind of need to tease these out a little bit there's a certain sense where just isolation itself has its own baggage mm, that's really helpful i yeah thank you for clarifying that you know mental health mental illness is so much more common i think than most people realize in fact i think one of the recent studies that i read um said that nearly one in five adults experience mental health problems every year and so it makes sense that increasingly people are looking to, for help i mean they're and they're looking to their church leaders or um, people in ministry and yet Often, if you were taking personal anecdotes in consideration, they're finding their churches and their leaders to be really ill-equipped um, or misinformed about the nature of what they're struggling with. And, you know, I thought about, you know, you wrote a book a while ago now, but it was called um, What They Didn't Teach You in Seminary. And I know you don't like tackle mental health issues specifically, but I feel like really you could have, like you could have dedicated a chapter to that because that's not something that... I feel like seminaries really equip pastors for, or you could speak better to that. So I guess the question is, why do you think so many people in ministry are so ill-equipped to handle or support people with mental health problems? Well, and I think you're being kind to <laughs> uh, a lot of church leaders because I think there's just flat out spiritual malpractice. I mm. think you can call it that when it comes to mental health issues. But let's, let me answer your question. I think the first reason is that there is uh, wrongly, sadly, a stigma that is attached 
many erroneously link something like depression uh, to a sin, that it is a sin or is a, it's a spiritual weakness at best. You know, you shouldn't be depressed. So there's this, their, their, their church leaders aren't dealing with this adequately or they're not helping people because they're, they're viewing it through a lens that's false, that's, that, that puts it into the spiritual weakness or even sin category. I think second, you're right, there, there's no training. Uh, there's very little training. Um, at the seminary level, usually there's just at best courses in pastoral care and counseling. And again, pastoral care is different than formal, you know, counseling, a trained counselor. And then that's different than a true mental health professional, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And so uh, you've got the degrees to which, you know, the training is there for these particularly advanced issues and even recognize it. And, that, and that's another thing too, when you don't have some knowledge or training and you haven't done some work on this, you don't even have the ability to have pastoral care function as mental health triage. And what I mean by that is, you know, a triage unit medically is where you assess, you make an assessment and you're able to make an assessment. It may not be your area to, of expertise to be able to solve, but you're able to make an assessment, okay? So like an EMT person, uh, they're essentially, they're doing an immediate care, but also triage. So they know exactly, okay, this is, this is what we need to tell the hospital is coming their way. They, they need to have a cardiologist ready, or they need to have a, a GI person ready, you know, because it's a blockage or whatever it is, there's an assessment yeah, yeah. so that they know how they can best serve. And so I don't think um, they're even accepting their role to form, uh, to be a, a triage. Um, and um, in terms of referring people and knowing how best to refer people. And I think the last thing is, is that, um, you know, we, we do, we do try to spiritualize everything. I think, I think this for a pat, the average pastor, and I'm not trying to put pastors down. I, I am one and I have a huge heart for pastors, but I, I also want this to be, you know, helpful in a broad sense. So let me, let me self critique that, um, pastors, uh, tend to maybe perhaps spiritualize everything. And if you ever heard the old uh, line, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so what happens, what can happen to a pastor? if they're not careful, is that every person they meet with, every situation they encounter, they instantly spiritualize it. And, you know, they're a hammer and so it looks like a nail. So that's how I'm going to address it and treat it and, and deal with it. And, and I think that pastors, church leaders and others would be well advised to have a broader view. And just like I would say to a counselor, hey, not everything is maybe mental health. There could be something spiritual going on there. And so, you know, others need to broaden it out the other way. Gosh, that triage example was so helpful because I think you're right. Like, I think that point that you made about over-spiritualizing things can often come from the fact that pastors sometimes don't see themselves as triage, like trying to equip themselves to, if 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 accurate, to refer people to someone else or to prefer people to professional help. And so they do what only they feel equipped to do, which is to speak to the spiritual component of it. But that is so helpful to realize, like, there is that component, but that's not all there is to it. And so you playing that triage role is really, that's, yeah, I love that metaphor. That's helpful. You know, you've mentioned depression a couple of times already today and um, being at MEC um, here and listening to you speak, I have heard you speak, you know, to our entire congregation about depression as well. Um, and I always feel like every time you talk about that, people always walk away saying, I have never heard a church talk about this before. And so I'm curious, you know, why do you single out depression specifically? 
Well, one of the things that I, I work very hard to do is for Mech to be a safe place for everyone and an authentic place to come and explore the Christian faith and also be a place where the masks come off. I've, 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 I've talked about that ever since Mech got started. You know, I've been trying to get that into our DNA for over three decades. Uh, the masks need to come off. And one of the biggest masks of all is uh, people uh, wearing a mask over their depression. Uh, and the reason the mask is on is because people often view depression as, as a, again, as, as a weakness, um, something that shouldn't be tolerated or allowed to take hold of a life. So people keep their depression a secret. Um, and, uh, you know, but that, 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 again, that mask has to come off first because depression is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. It is not a spiritual fail and it is not some kind of sin. And, and, and we need to get that out of our heads. Clinical depression, which is what I'm talking about, clinical depression is one of four diseases that physicians call mood disorders. Uh, just as diabetes, as I mentioned, has to do with the body's failure to um, regulate blood sugar, mood disorders result from the brain's inability to regulate the chemicals that control mood. Uh, there are nerve cells in the brain, I don't wanna to get too technical, but this is important because we, we don't make this the medical issue that it is. We have nerve cells in the brain communicate with each other by releasing chemicals called neurotransmitters. Uh, specifically norepinephrine and serotonin. And those are the two neurotransmitters that are involved in depression. When there is an ample supply of those two, then we tend to feel normal. I mean, we have a normal emotionality, normal mental health, if you will, uh, because it's available to stimulate the other nerve cells. You can still have your regular ups and downs, uh, bad days and good days, but you're not fighting clinical depression. In clinical depression, though, fewer of those neurotransmitters are released because the first nerve cell reabsorbs them before it can stimulate other nearby nerve cells. So what antidepressant medications do, uh, they work because they increase the amounts of both norepinephrine or serotonin uh, in the body. And the need for antidepressants to address this very physical chemical imbalance, uh, which can be caused by any number of factors, is, is just necessary medicine. Um, life circumstances can cause this kind of breakdown between the neurotransmitters. Emotional trauma uh, can initiate the chemical changes um, in the brain that cause depression, including, you know, long sustained seasons of stress. Um, again, I don't want to get overly clinical with you, but I, I really do get tired of people making this some kind of spiritual sin. Uh, it's not. It's a medical issue. And uh, you shouldn't feel any shame in telling someone I'm on, anti I'm on antidepressants right now. Uh, I'm not sure for how long I'm working with my doctor on that, but they really seem to be helping right now. That, that, that should be such a non-issue. Uh, so we need to put an end to feeling ashamed of depression or being spiritually self-conscious about it in some way. It's a physical deficiency that can and should be addressed. As I put it earlier, if someone is dealing with clinical depression, they need to be on antidepressants, just like a diabetic, hopefully is on insulin. And so I, I talk about it a lot because, and we, we can get into this, but it can, it can be, um, uh, you know, if someone has to wear the mask and they don't even feel like they can get it treated, much less supported, that can lead to nightmarish things, including suicide. Oh, that's interesting that you mentioned suicide because I feel like 
Well, if depression is not something that churches talk about a lot, well, even less do they talk about suicide. If anything, you know, there seems to be, that seems to be like an off limits topic or a taboo topic. And there's a lot of, you mentioned spiritual malpractice. I feel like there's a lot of a wide spectrum of teaching when it comes to suicide. And some see it as, you know, an unforgivable sin, which has caused those who struggle with suicidal thoughts to feel you know, un, unreachable by God or unloved by God or those who have lost someone in their family or, or a friend to suicide can feel judged by that. So I, again, I know we could do a whole podcast on this, but just because we're talking about this now, could you give a word about maybe the biblical view as you see it of suicide? Sure. Um, first, I, you know, I've been following this as a cultural phenomenon, particularly of late. I don't know if many people realize that between 1999 and 2018, there was a 35% increase in uh, suicide. It's now the 10th leading cause of death. It may have even crept up to ninth, but uh, it's in the top 10 causes of death in the United States. Um, these rates have been seen across every age group and for both males and females. Uh, males remain the most likely to commit suicide um, at nearly four times the rate actually of women. But the rise of suicide among women is greater than the rise among men. Between 1999-2018, again, that period, the rate among men grew by 28%. The rate among women, it grew by 55%. Wow. So it's very alarming across the board. Suicide um, has been historically uh, condemned by the Christian faith. And let me say, rightfully so. Um, the Bible is clear. You shall not murder. And the reason is simple. Life is sacred. Uh, the fact that each and every one of us is made in the image of God gives each and every one of us infinite worth and value and taking it upon ourselves to end a life is the ultimate act of defiance against God for life is his and his alone to give and to take. The taking of a life uh, murder is showing contempt for God and his image, and it's not ours to do with as we please. And that includes murdering ourselves because we don't own ourselves. But it is not the unforgivable sin nor something that automatically commits you to hell. It is clearly the wrongful taking of a life and a violation of the sixth commitment. It's never God's dream or desire. And also when done, you know, apart from mental health issues is a, is a, is a very selfish act as well in terms of those that you leave behind. Uh, but when mental health issues are present and are behind suicide, um, uh, when that's there, I, I'm not even sure I'm prepared to call it a sin. Uh, and uh, because it's, it's more like what happened was a result of a disease. They died of a disease. And that disease was uh, uncontrollable, un, almost resistible clinical depression. And this is why stunning rises in suicide should be alarming to all Christians. And another reason why the masks need to come off. Um, and uh, it should be a clarion call for change. These are people who need our compassion and they need our help. And yet within the Christian community, where openness and grace should be flowing the richest and the deepest, uh, where the masks are meant to come off and safety offered to all, no matter what we're struggling with, owning depression is virtually taboo. Uh, there's just this unwritten rule, as I was talking about a minute ago, that people of faith um, shouldn't be depressed. And the prevailing idea is that the Christian faith is to be a faith of joy, uh, making depression a sin, which means there's no excuse for a depressed spirit. As a result, depressed people um, have been riddled with guilt, or they've been hiding in shame, uh, or they've been afraid to surface 
in order to get the help that they so desperately need. And that can lead to suicide. And so let's be clear about this again. And I don't mind even barring a little bit of repetition here. Depression um, and a strong, vibrant faith are not automatically at odds with each other. Uh, throughout Christian history, uh, men and women who have been deeply committed to Christ have been gripped, sometimes mercilessly, seemingly, in the icy clutches of depression. And uh, in fact, you know, let me walk you through some people in history that, that some of our listeners may know. Um, and I, I, knowing we were going to be talking about some of this, I didn't know if there'd be an opportunity, but I, I've, I've got some interesting quotes here in front of me. Uh, in 1527, the great uh, Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, uh, the man who started the Lutheran church and penned the words to one of the greatest hymns of all time, a mighty fortress is our God, wrote these words. He said, for more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell, and I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. Luther went on to write that the content of the depressions was always the same, the loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. Mm. That's a depressed man. Mm -hmm. uh, Charles Spurgeon the dynamic pastor behind the 19th century revival movement and uh, sometimes looked back on and seen as the Billy Graham of his day, wrote, uh, told his congregation this in 1866 about his struggle. He said, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go through. Hmm. Uh, famed missionary to China, uh, Hudson Taylor, who founded the China Inland Mission and battled severe depression his whole life. At one point he discovered, and we know this from an unpublished note in his papers, that he even contemplated the awful temptation to end his life. He struggled with suicidal thoughts. <laughs> um, and then of course, classic, you know, Elijah, you know, yeah. after his huge Mount Carmel thing, he just went under a broom tree and said, I'm ready to die. <laughs> just collapsed, emotionally spent. These people walked with God, they loved God, they gave their lives to God, and they suffered terribly with depression. And if you say, well, how can that be? Well, that's what we're trying to get across, I think. Uh, it's because we're all broken. Everyone broken can experience depression. I can, you can, anyone can. Yes, the Holy Spirit is alive and well and lives in us if we're Christ followers, but he lives in us as fallen creatures. We, for we forget that. He lives in us as fallen creatures in a fallen world, and every one of us can get depressed. Now, can this be a spiritual battle and not just something that needs an antidepressant? I think we have to say, well, of course, I, I alluded to that earlier. Um, I, re I recall reading psychologist and author Larry Crabb on this, and I thought it was very astute. Um, and as I try to paraphrase him, he, he, he said that um, some efforts to treat this depression and mental issues as a psychological disorder might in reality cheapen the mysterious uh, battle going deep within a soul. And he adds, you know, he says, you know, suppose that many of the struggles we assume are symptoms of a psychological disorder are in fact evidence of a disconnected soul and a soul starving for life. And thus connecting with the source of life, uh, not professional treatment, may be what is called for. And I totally agree. Uh, but it's not always a spiritual battle. And I think we actually, if you're going to look at the pendulum within the church, you know, like swinging, like, okay, we're making everything a psychological disorder and not spiritual, or we're making everything a spiritual disorder and not psychological. I think we swung to that side. Mm -hmm. And so I think what Crab mentions is quite accurate, but I think that in most cases, we're, we're, we're making it a spiritual issue when it's, when it's a, a medical issue. 
a physical issue. But whether it's physical or spiritual, it needs you can surface with it, and and it needs help. And asking for that help should be done without shame or incrimination. But the problem is, a lot of pastors and church leaders are not talking like this. Right, and I think I want to maybe talk about that fact a little bit more because. You mentioned this um, in just a moment ago, but I, it's something that I've noticed too, that in a lot of churches, there's just this culture, and I don't I don't think it's always intentional, but it, there's almost this culture of we come together to praise, but if you are dealing with something difficult, then you need to handle that in private. So it's like we, we worship um, and we praise as a community, but we... Um, lament privately. And again, I don't know if that's conscious, I don't know if that's like a conscious culture, but I do think that it's prevalent enough that we need to do something to battle that because otherwise that's what, you, as you mentioned, makes people feel like they can't get the help that they need or that they're the only ones who are struggling. And so I'm curious to see what you hear, what you've observed about that. And then maybe if you have any ideas as to what churches can do to cultivate an atmosphere that is balanced more with, you know, worship and lament. Well, you know, I, I, I would ask, you know, I would say to a fellow pastor, you know, if they asked me for that question, wanting help with that, I would say, well, when's the last time you, you did a series on issues, hmm. mental health issues or just struggles or just, you know, things where you make it legal, you're, you're injecting it into the system of your, your church's ecosystem to where it's like, oh my gosh, we're talking about this. I can't, you know, we're actually talking about this. Hmm. I mean, we talk about money issues. We talk about marriage issues. Why can't we talk about mental health issues? Why can't we talk about, um, you know, all the different areas that we struggle with, sexual addictions and pornography and so many other things. And I think that the more a church talks about it in a way that's not shame-based and that isn't trying to just simply like convict, beat up or whatever, but it's like, hey, let's all get on the solution side of this. Let's let's own what we need to own. If we need to realize that something's not healthy, okay, we'll call it unhealthy, but now let's let's realize why we don't want to be unhealthy in that area and what we can do to be on the, on the, on the other side of it. So I think that when a, a a pastor or a church leader talks about it and kind of strips away the stigma and uh, the sin and failure dynamics to it. And then I think a second thing you can do is to offer practical resources. And the more you offer actual practical resources, you and I were talking offline beforehand about how we just did a big seminar. It was for parents, but it was for parents to know how to deal with mental health issues with their children mm -hmm. and just offering something as simple as that, you know, and just things like that, just seminars and and classes where you're talking openly about this and you're providing resources. It, it takes away the stigma and it gets it into the culture where you can talk about these things frankly and openly. and People can get the help that they need. Yeah, and I can um, be sure to link in the show notes some of the series or talks that you have given about uh, mental health issues in case that would be helpful. I have another question, and I'm I'm sorry if I'm getting too narrow in scope, but the longer that I've been in ministry, something that I've really struggled more and more with is seeing and talking to spouse to to people who have spouses who struggle with uh, mental health issues. I mean, you talk about you said isolation and loneliness. I just feel like that anecdotally has been such a difficult walk for people to to take with um, a spouse who struggles with that and. Of course, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, there usually never is, but you've had much more ministry experience than I have with this, and I'm just curious as to how you have handled that in the past. Yeah, it's tricky, um, <laughs> and it's tricky on a number of levels. One uh, one reason is because often the spouse in question isn't a Christian, right? Um, and so I'm not their pastor, and I don't really have access to them. And it's the husband or it's the wife that is saying, what do I do with my spouse who has these mental health issues? And, you know, so a lot of times it's, it's very difficult 
And so you're almost left to just pray with them and encourage them and support them and steer them toward resources and provide resources and start support groups in the church for things of that nature. Um, because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, uh, married people who are in isolation from their spouse on some area. Yeah. And so they need support. Um, I mean, there's the classic, you know, I go to church, my husband doesn't, or my wife isn't a Christian and I am, and, you know, I need that kind of uh, help support, but there's a lot of other things like with mental health. Um, I think another thing too is um, though that I've, I've often had to try to help them with is their own guilt that they feel over their spouse and that they they can't do certain things that protect them uh, from uh, mental health issues where either that person's not getting mental health help, they refuse to do that or something else. And I'm thinking specifically of appropriate boundaries when uh, the mental health issues uh, can lead to abusive behavior. Hmm. And that is where sometimes they just feel like I've just got to take it, take it, take it, because, you know, as opposed to no, not when it crosses some of these boundaries like yeah. physical abuse or something like that. So it, it's a tricky thing. You have to walk through it case by case, but yeah, they, they feel terribly isolated and alone and they don't know what to do. And they don't even, they, and there's certain things they might want to flee and they don't feel like they can flee, but you know, it's, 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 you got to really roll up your sleeves and kind of walk through some things pastorally with people in terms of the specifics. I hope I hope he, I hope ministry leaders hear you in that and hear that vantage point in case they haven't really considered it before because I do feel like it's just becoming more and more prevalent and so if you haven't already dealt with that um, at your church then you probably will soon so um, yeah now we're we're running longer today than usual but I think that's uh, that's okay but I do want to end with one more question because we've kind of been talking about mental health or people tend to talk about mental health more in the lines of mental health like illness and less about mental health in general. And so like kind of more from the treatment perspective rather than the preventative perspective. And so um, do you see anything in the Bible that maybe you could talk about that would encourage us as to how to guard our mental health? There's a life I've, I've gone back to and studied on multiple levels throughout the years that comes to mind in response to that question. And I'll try, I know we're going long, so I'll try to just make this succinct as possible. Just give the, the big idea. The man's life is Moses, and he dealt with a lot of mental health challenges if you study his life carefully. Um, and a panic, virtually a panic attack in the presence of God over the thought of public speaking. There was a, um, a complete breakdown in terms of emotional depletion as he was trying to settle all the problems of the people, you know, every single one. Um, and there was even just a physical exhaustion, like with the battle of the Amalekites, where he couldn't even hold his hand up. But in all three of those situations, we have the answer. We have the key. You, have, you need, I think for mental health, if you look at Moses, you need three types of people in your life. Uh, let's go back to the situation where he's trying to solve all the people's problems. Um, he wasn't able to do it. He didn't know what to do. And along comes Jethro, his father-in-law, who was a mentor to him. And in just a very quick assessment, told Moses exactly what he needed to do. And it kept Moses from dying in a pile. And so you need mentors in your life who can assess your life objectively. You've got more experience, more years uh, than, than you do and can say, hey, you know, don't just keep swinging the ax harder. Let me show you how to sharpen it. Um, so you need those people over you. You need people beside you. I mentioned the, um, uh, you know, you need, you need, um, he needed 
Aaron desperately to be his public speaker. He needed someone who had strengths where he didn't have strengths and he needed someone who could do that. And so he needed that kind of a teammate around him. And that's, we often don't think about purposefully filling our relational world with, with people who have strengths and abilities and that we, we don't have. In other words, okay, Moses was having a panic attack. He needed somebody who wasn't gonna have a panic attack in that area and who could kind of stabilize him, you know, in that way. And then you need people underneath you, supporters. And again, with the battle of the Amalekites, not to get to just a quick reminder of the story, you know, when he held the staff up, you know, they won when he got tired and lowered it, they lost. And so two men came along beside him and they first they found a stone for him to sit on and then they held his hands up for him and Israel won the battle. You need all three types of people in your life. You need to be intentional about it and you need to and have the humility to to welcome them in. And again, um, I, I do believe this is the beauty of the church where you have this community there, people that can be that for you, but you have to be intentional about it. It's not something you, you, you can't just sit back passively. Community is not something that you discover. I've always said it's something that you make, you make it happen and, and you create that community. But the church gives you all of the raw ingredients that you need. And the people, that's, that's one of the beauties of, of the church and being there for, and why there's so many in the scriptures was called the one another's, where all the things that we're supposed to do for one another. And it's interestingly that, interesting that that passage in Hebrews says, let us not stop meeting together um has nothing to do with corporate worship and it has everything to do with like not stopping uh having people enter into your life and you being willing to enter into other people's lives mm -hmm. so that we can encourage one another on and that was the, the context of the hebrews passage and so it fits beautifully into this and so if i had to give one prescription for mental health i, I would say it's uh, enter intentionally into a healthy community do a 360 degree relational inventory and people above, beside, below you, and make sure you have those kinds of relationships in your life. And again, that's a short <laughs> assessment of what I could do an entire message series on in terms of uh, those people in your life and how that plays out for health and wholeness in a host of areas. But that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, we've talked about that a handful of times at MEC. So again, we'll share those resources in the show notes as well. Um, but gosh, thank you for your time, um, Jim. I, I, I don't think this is going to be the last time that we talk about this just because it is so um, prevalent. But I do think this was such a helpful conversation um, for so many to eavesdrop <laughs> into and hopefully has given a lot of churches and ministry leaders a lot to think about in terms of their own church community and culture. And so, yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week.